Jingi walla blagami arako dukum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bugube blagami. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, Fiona Murphy talks with Caroline Baum about her memoir, The Shape of Sound, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello and welcome to this special podcast for the Byron Writers Festival. I'm Caroline Baum and firstly I'd like to pay my respects to the elders of where I'm speaking to you from, which is Darawal country, the traditional lands of the Wadi Wadi people on the south coast of New South Wales. For over 25 years Fiona Murphy kept a secret about herself. That secret was that she was deaf. In her remarkable memoir, The Shape of Sound, Fiona shares the experience of her shame as she navigates the world of her disability, trying hearing glasses, hearing aids, and eventually learning sign language and finding a sense of belonging in the deaf community while pursuing a career as a physiotherapist. Her insights brought me a sharp new awareness of sound, silence, noise, and of how poorly we acknowledge and understand the experience of deaf people even while we are all mesmerised by the signers who accompany every press conference on bushfires and COVID. Fiona, welcome to this special podcast for the Byron Writers' Festival. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Now, I mentioned those Auslan signers that we're all watching at the moment at press conferences. It seems to me that we only ever see them on our screens when there is a disaster in play. And so I think that that means that we associate signing with negative things. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, absolutely. So it is quite exciting to see that there are many more um, interpreters on screen, but we rarely see deaf people on screen, let alone Auslan in its full natural cultural form of two deaf people or fluent signers conversing with one another on screen. So we're only really accessing a very um, pared back version of Auslan, which is very much bureaucratic language from press conferences. So unfortunately, the general public, whilst they may be excited by what they've seen, they really haven't been given access to the full scope and um, poetics of uh, sign language, which there is um, in kind of the arts sector, a push towards having more accessibility. So prior to COVID, there was more Auslan interpreters present for live performances 
unfortunately in a, a show's run that might be one night out of say 50 shows or however many shows um, so access is still extremely limited for uh, deaf and hard of hearing people but I think it's also um, a real shame that the general public don't have access as well to um, a language and culture that is not only beautiful because a lot of people describe it as beautiful it's intellectual. It is so intellectually rigorous and has a complex grammar system and it is a language. It's not just a piece of performance art. It is um, really exciting to see in America where deaf culture is, um, there's a larger deaf community, so it's slightly different to Australia. So there's a, a larger sense of advocacy because there's more people kind of agitating for equal rights. But they um, quite routinely have interpreters present at rock concerts and jazz concerts and just any sort of live music event, whether it is just music um, with lyrics or without lyrics, they have people interpreting um, the music experience itself. And it would be, whilst it was happening a little bit prior to COVID, I kind of really hope that um, the interest the general public have had in deaf culture just continues to grow and grow and grow into the future. Yeah, I hope so too. I have to ask you, I was thinking about lockdown and what the experience might mean for you, particularly to do with masks. What does that mean for you in terms of communicating with people? It's been, every day feels like running a marathon, to be honest, because I rely so much on uh, facial expressions, not only um, lip reading isn't an exact science by any stretch of the imagination. So when I'm hearing, I'm hearing um, words that aren't in their full form. So letters drop out because of the way my hearing is. So I'm very much guessing um, word for word as a conversation goes on. So I really rely on someone's facial expressions to either kind of give a tonal cue as to whether it's a positive or a negative word or kind of a flick of the eyebrows if it's sarcasm or the kind of the weight of their voice. It's almost quite a, a physical sort of um, interaction. So conversations over Zoom and Skype are almost two-dimensional in that I'm not getting the full sort of unintentional cues that people would have when um, they were face-to-face. -face. So how somebody holds themselves with their postures and their body language, um, how they shift their weight and move, move around just gives all this kind of contextual information. So when I'm being a detective and problem solving, I'm going, okay, so this person is obviously agitated and they've mentioned this word and that word okay, this is what they're talking about. And I can um, maneuver myself in conversations to gather more and more information. But with a mask, it essentially erases so much information because um, suddenly people's nostrils are gone and you wouldn't believe how much information comes from whether someone's nostrils are flaring or not <laughs> or um, just the, the kind of scrunching up around the eyes of whether because people as um, whether they have hearing loss or not will start to notice that our eyes are so expressive so you can tell when someone's smiling under a mask because our eyes change completely. So you can start to see how a face is extremely important for a deaf or hard of hearing person. So to not have access to that 
or not to have access to face-to-face communication to get a full sweep of the body mm. um, is exhausting. And unfortunately, um, it's just having to kind of cope with that exhaustion and advocate for access on an ongoing basis, whereas previously I might have been able to um, conceal my deafness, um, but I am having to on a more regular basis, remind people or speak up about it, which is I'm thankful that I'm proud to be deaf now, whereas if this was five or ten years ago, I'm not even sure how I would have coped. Well, it's lovely to hear you say that word about, you know, proud to to be deaf now because, of course, your book starts in a very different place and it starts with shame. And I'm just wondering whether you now can say where you think the shame and the desire to hide your deafness originated. Do you think that it came from your family, from your family's desire for you to not be deaf? No, not at all. I think it's more from, I think it very much came from my difficulties with learning how to read or write. So that was quite clearly articulated as being a problem or an issue, which obviously illiteracy is um, a massive barrier and needs to be overcome through strategies and resources. So it was very much, um, I come from a very pragmatic family, a family of farmers and builders and nurses. So very working class, very pragmatic, very practical. And it was very much like, all right, we need to solve this problem with literacy. But obviously as a child being so young, um, I think that gave me the impression and idea that this was something that I had to overcome. And being in a classroom where you are very aware that you are not only at the bottom of the class, but you're at risk of being removed from the class to be put into a special unit, um, would definitely played into my sense of self of knowing that special wasn't a positive word, but it was very much um, being kind of ostracized away from all my friends. So I was, I think a lot of it came from a good place, the kind of support and encouragement, but there wasn't those necessarily positive deaf role models around me to kind of get a sense of this is normal to have difficulty with language if you have hearing loss. This isn't because of you not trying. It's because of a lack of access. Just on that point, I've just watched, and I'm sure everybody asks you this all the time, I've just watched the film Coda, which has had such a success at Sundance and around the world, being praised as this wonderfully sensitive remake, in fact, of a French film with the same idea about a girl who has a talent for singing and she's um, the daughter of deaf parents. I wondered whether in your journey at any point, Fiona, did you wish that your parents were deaf? That's such an interesting question. No. No, that I've never really thought about that actually. Um, I think possibly I had always considered myself to be half deaf. So I didn't even, for most of my life, I didn't really even acknowledge that part of myself. So that my sense of shame was so immense that I got into this sense of magical thinking of if I didn't think about my deafness, it didn't exist and I was just hearing. So I had this, it took me years to kind of untangle all these odd little 
habits and thoughts that I had about it. And I was so um, disinterested and afraid of thinking about my deafness. I really pushed it out of my experience of the world, which obviously it was impacting me day to day, but I just wouldn't acknowledge it. And I was very much um, presented myself as a hearing individual and I had a great love of music and other hearing culture pursuits that that was my identity. And I was very much um, able to kind of assimilate into the hearing world so well that I didn't, I wasn't even aware of a deaf world at all um, or deaf culture until my mid to late 20s. So, no, I never kind of wished other people were deaf because I didn't even kind of think about myself as being deaf. That's right. I mean, there was a quite complex sort of dance of denial going on there, which you explore, I think, in great depth and with great poetry as well. Now, I said in my introduction that you kept a secret for a long time, but you put it much, much better. The secret kept you. What do you mean by that? Oh, this is, I think, what gave me the sort of endurance to... um, not speak up about my hearing loss because it didn't feel like a choice to advocate and own that identity. So even if I was having trouble in a conversation, I didn't feel like it was safe to um, reveal my deafness. And it became a tricky situation where if I had been friends with someone for a long time, months or even years, it became even harder to suddenly reveal well, I'm actually deaf because that would undermine the integrity of the friendship I believed um, because I would be a fraud and a liar. And it became this tricky scenario where I felt like I had pushed myself into a corner that I couldn't get out of. Um, So it was only much later, again, in my sort of mid-20s that I realised this isn't a choice, this is a secret. And once I had that idea that, oh, my goodness, I'm concealing so much of myself it made me realize that there was so much that I hadn't actually explored so it was almost like a door opening and I had that door shut for so long which was a little bit terrifying stepping into this unknown world of deafness So I'm going to ask you a very cheeky question, given that we've known each other for about 10 minutes now, and um, you can just bat it away as being far too intrusive. But you're very funny and very perceptive about um, dating and the difficulties of dating and getting rid of dating apps. As soon as you've uploaded them, you you get rid of them. Um, You don't talk to us about sex. There's a kind of boundary of privacy that you've put around yourself in this book where you take us to the door, but you don't take us through that door. Was that a very deliberate, very conscious decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, But there's a lot of deliberate decisions throughout the book, which some readers have noticed obvious sort of where I step away from personal information or I step into personal information. And that was more of not necessarily about sex, because I don't mind talking about sex, but my sort of um, modus operandi for this book was really a quest of scientific journeying through trying to really grapple with understanding what is deafness on a fundamental level 
And more interestingly, which I didn't think was going to be such a question of what is hearing and what does it mean to hear? I thought I understood what it meant to hear, but I didn't actually understand it completely at all in terms of how my body is um, missing certain abilities because of my deafness, such as locating sound or understanding the very shape and depth of the world around me. So that was my natural inclination is to be very scientific, to kind of almost um, feed my own knowledge about this, my own innate curiosity. And I wasn't particularly um, curious about my own life experiences because I had lived them. So I had almost um, taken myself out of the narrative in the first iteration of the manuscript. And it was a very kind of almost an academic approach to deafness, which I adored. I just really learned so much. And I'm just such a nerd for kind of um, reading random journal articles and like studies from 40 or 50 years ago where um, you can see the progression of scientific thought. But that doesn't make for a very vivid and interesting read for the general reader or audience. Um, so it was a very slow process process of inserting myself into the manuscript over many, many drafts. I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of your own profession, your career as a physiotherapist, and, and you also explore the sense of touch in this book. So, you know, when we're talking about people who are blind, we believe, I don't know whether this is old science, that other senses are enhanced so that if you're blind, you may have a more acute sense of hearing. So I wondered whether you thought and whether there was any research to support the idea that being deaf, you might have an enhanced sense of touch. There is a lot of research into that, and it is a bit of a misnomer uh, that there's an enhancement of senses. It's more of an alteration in the mapping of the brain. So take, for example, my brain, I've never been able to hear through my left ear. So that area of the brain doesn't shrivel up and die, but rather other sections start to creep in, taking up that real estate, if you like, for what would have been dedicated to the left ear. So there is almost kind of a synesthesia that occurs so uh, an alteration of how someone experiences sound. So very much um, my experience of sound is more through taste and touch. It doesn't mean I'm any better at those things than other people. It's just a completely different experience of um, experiencing the world because of that, those changes at a neuroplastic level. But at the same time, because I spend so, um, I give so much attention to certain things to help navigate the world, such as body language, behaviours, expressions. I do have a vast array of experiences in my life that I can call upon and read bodies with a little bit more nuance than somebody who doesn't need to use that information necessarily. So I think it goes with a change in the neural plasticity versus the real lived experience of how you practically navigate the world um, gives almost a seemingly an enhanced ability to do things, but fundamentally at the scientific level, there's not a real enhancement if it's just a, a person without that ability versus another person side by side, a control and not 
doing certain kind of scientific tests, if that makes sense. So one of the things that you taught me, one of the many things that you taught me in this book is about the sensory overload that can occur when you try hearing aids. So I know a lot of people who put off getting hearing aids and it's a kind of denial of a various, of you know, it's a, it's a denialism of age. Um, they're worried about them looking ugly. They're not, they're not a sexy thing. I mean, no one has managed yet to make hearing aids sexy. Um, but what I didn't understand was how unpleasant the sound that you hear when you first experience hearing aids can be. Can you just talk a little bit about what happens when you use hearing aids, why you delayed that for so long, and about that sensory noise? Yeah, so two parts to that question. The reason why I delayed it is because it wasn't an option in terms of technology when I was a child. So to give context, I'm profoundly deaf in my left ear, and uh, at that stage when I was a child, I had complete intact hearing in my right ear. The kind of methodology and thinking at the time was, well, you can get by with one ear. She'll be right. You'll be fine. And they weren't doing uh, cochlear ear implants for unilateral deafness at that stage. They are offering that to people now, and it's seen as the the kind of gold standard best practice. So if I was um, diagnosed today as a six-year-old, more than likely I would be implanted because I don't have any um, functional hearing in that ear that it would be, I would require an implant to bypass the ear to create that hearing experience. But one change of technology that has happened is a hearing aid that is called a CROS. So it is a contralateral routing hearing aid. So it mimics the idea that you have two functioning ears. So you pop it on both ears. The left ear in my case would pick up the sound. So there would be a microphone to pick up the sound from the left side of my body and that information is fed through to my right ear. And then my brain is tricked into thinking, ah, she has two functioning ears. How wonderful. So that technology wasn't available when I was a child. So in my mid-20s, when I tried it, I'd never experienced um, binaural hearing. So I'd never experienced having two ears before. I hopped popped them on and it was like an explosion in my head. It was so... Violent is the closest word to describe the experience, which I don't want to put anyone off hearing aids, but I think it wasn't framed up in a way that I completely understood what was going to happen to my brain. Areas of my brain were suddenly exposed to sound that had never been exposed to sound before. On a fundamental level, both hemispheres in my brain had now sound to deal with and on a kind of a cognitive processing level I was completely overwhelmed so my ability to think and understand where my body was in space how to talk to someone how to modulate my voice how to move how to react to a car or somebody skateboarding mm. to gate slamming and closing it was just an overwhelming sense of sound and it wasn't so much 
a volume of sound, but an opening up of my entire left body, which I just had never had access to before because I never heard it. So my center of gravity shifted suddenly. And it when I was moving and walking, it was very much like I was drunk because I didn't have a sense of balance within myself. That experience doesn't happen for somebody who has acquired hearing loss, say age-related hearing loss. And that's very fundamentally different because they their brains will have accessed sound at some point and generally people gradually lose their hearing over many, many years. So it's almost a perception difference to kind of sound itself. The longer somebody goes without augmenting that and getting hearing aids, it does become a harsher, more difficult process to readjust to full hearing. And unfortunately, with the technology, whilst it is improving, it's still simply an amplification of the world. It's not selective hearing, which our brains are just so exquisitely clever at literally tuning into what we want to hear. So if you and I were on a busy street and talking and there are other people around us, but I give my attention to you, my brain will acknowledge that tune down everything else around us and amplify your voice. That's our brain doing incredible things. Well, I should say my brain doesn't do that, but (laughs) most people in the world, their brains are able to do that. Selectively amplify voices in a crowd or if there's multiple people speaking. Unfortunately, hearing aids can't do that, but what it will do is amplify all surrounding noises. So a really common experience is uh, cafes or restaurants. All the cutlery is suddenly as loud as every other voice, and it is a cacophony of absolute noise. And the fatigue that comes with that is immense because that individual is literally having to problem solve and give their attention with all that background noise. Um, so it's the general information that's given to people is persevere, it'll get better, it'll get easier, but there's little acknowledgement of fatigue and um, effort that is required. Often people give up and withdraw. They say it's too much, I won't persist. So I think it's often not framed up in a way that is practical. And it's often the responsibility is given to the individual of these are your hearing aids, put on your hearing aids and you will hear. Whereas there isn't that um, education about how to facilitate good communication on a family level or a social level of getting someone's attention, ensuring there's minimal background noise, good lighting to illuminate faces. Um, ensuring that you don't speak too slowly, too quickly. Over-articulating is very difficult to understand, whereas talking at a kind of a moderate speed, ensuring that you're giving the person pauses so they can rest and recover between conversations, all these are tips and tricks that are just Mm. not taught to people. 
No, and it makes me realise that when my mother went to get fitted for her hearing aids, none of this was explained, and she went into that meeting, that appointment on her own, whereas in fact it would have been really beneficial if those members of her family who are caring for her had been invited into the meeting so that we would have been made aware of everything that you've just said. That is that is a real failure, and I hope that that's something that we can change and address. I wanted to ask you, since you love research so much. When you were writing this book, did you um, discover anything about deafness and how Indigenous culture approaches it? That's really interesting. I did find out little bits and pieces, but not enough to confidently um, include that information in the book because the research I had found was very much done in the late 80s and 90s and I was very cognizant of not wanting to um, be disrespectful to cultural protocol. But I made it my uh, aim and goal to after the book to start having uh, conversations with other deaf people but in a more formalised journalistic perspective. I'm not a journalist but this idea of having interviews and writing articles. So I've been very lucky to have um, a fellowship with the ABC doing um, interviews with deaf people and writing articles around it and the first piece to come out of that series was um, interviewing Indigenous deaf people about their cultural experiences with sign language. Um, It's not widely known that in Australia that there are dozens and dozens and dozens of Indigenous sign languages which are still used today and they're very much tied into culture and community practice and there's a lot of cultural protocols to do with that as well of who can sign and when they can sign, signing on country versus signing off country and it's been absolutely fascinating and incredible uh, to have the privilege and opportunity to do that work of talking with different deaf people to find out their experiences with culture because um, there isn't just one sign language in Australia. There's many, many, many sign languages. Um, so hopefully more of that information is becomes widely available. Auslan is a wonderful part of your book is your discovery and embracing of Auslan. And one of the things that I love so much about Auslan as, as opposed to other signing languages is I'm told, having done a term of it, that it is one of the most physically expressive and one which gives a maximum scope for interpretation. So if you're a face puller like I am, you are encouraged to pull a lot of faces and you are encouraged to use your whole body. Apparently that's not the case with all signing languages. So can you perhaps tell us something about um, how you finally made friends with Auslan? Oh, yes. So I should say to kind of give background to that, um, as a as a child, when I was diagnosed with hearing loss, the question was asked whether or not I should learn sign language. And the audiologists and specialists were like, no, 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 no. You're too good for that. <laughs> That's the last resort. So it was very much even from that young age, and it's so crystal clear in my mind that Ausland is for the failed deaf people. So it's not for the good deaf people who are able to converse fluently with hearing people. So I honestly had 
no interest in sign language. I was proud not to know sign language because I felt like I was, I had achieved something by being able to pass as hearing and to speak fluently. And that's a common experience around the world, actually, that um, a lot of deaf children are put into speech therapy, speech pathology to really learn how to articulate clearly and pass as hearing. And sign language is still very much considered the last resort. In 2021, it's still considered the last resort. And there's this idea that still persists that if a child is exposed to sign, it will somehow stunt their brain development, which is infuriating and staggering that that um, belief exists um, because it does have an impact on education accessibility But that's to say that I had a very uh, limited understanding of sign language for a very long time and a very distanced relationship to it. But then when I was living in Melbourne and starting to see Ausland interpreters at theatre performances, your curiosity is um, just immediate because you're drawn to, as an audience member, this person who is so obviously skilled at expressing incredible concepts with their hands and their bodies and facial expressions that it's just anyone would be drawn to it. But I was still very much like, oh, should I, should I not? I had a lot of um, hesitancy around learning the language. I didn't think that it was for me because I was told it wasn't for me. And I didn't think that I was deaf enough to learn it, um, which, again, is such a ingrained idea for many deaf people. They're told you're not deaf enough, you shouldn't learn this. But eventually I accidentally, uh, whilst singing in the shower, slipped and uh, broke my wrist. And as a physiotherapist, I thought I needed to exercise my hands as much as possible to regain the strength and flexibility in them. And I happened at that stage to be living just around the corner from what is now known as Expression Australia, which used to be known as Vic Deaf. And I had started to see a lot of sign language in the neighborhood because a lot of deaf people would go there. And the idea just kept reoccurring in my head of, they're really good at moving their hands. I wish my hand would move like that because it's so injured. So I went in, I eventually enrolled in sign language classes and it was purely as a physiotherapy rehabilitation perspective is what I convinced myself. I'm like, I'm here to get my hands strong. Right. And that's how I treated the classes. I was very much like moving like a robot, just so um, a repetition, repetition, sets, reps. It was, um, it was ridiculous. I would have looked ridiculous, very stiff. But then... I got the experience to sign and I got the experience to know that um, it was an inner city location and there could be traffic outside. There could be 10 conversations happening in the room and it did not matter because I could fluently understand the person standing in front of me because we were both communicating through sign language. There was literally no barriers or disconnect. And I would leave the two-hour classes just elated. And usually after a classroom experience, I'd be so drained and small and almost scuttle out of a classroom was my usual experience of an education environment because 
in all of my experience, it would be a teacher talking and there would be conversation and I would have to listen so, so hard to follow. But I would leave these classes, go home to my housemates and I would be like, <laughs> let me show you everything I've learned. And eventually they would have to be like, um, you've been going for an hour, just please stop. Because I was just filled with so much joy and energy and it was revelatory, absolutely revelatory. Oh, that is just such a wonderful story. I mean, we began this conversation talking about how you've arrived at pride from a position, a starting point of shame. What has writing this book done for you then in terms of your sense of where you belong in the deaf community? To be honest, the actual writing process of it, I was still unsure of my place in the deaf community. And the actual writing of it really allowed some quite um, old thoughts to surface in my mind, really those kind of strange, magical realism kind of like, oh, if you don't think about deafness, you're not deaf. And I started to really map out and understand my relationship with deafness as a whole because I really held myself back from fully engaging with the deaf community because I didn't think I belonged. But by the time I got to the end of the book, I felt comfortable within myself and by the time the book came out I started to get letters and emails and DMs and just almost daily messages from other people who are deaf and hard of hearing of saying that is my experience. I didn't think I was allowed to learn sign language. I didn't think I could belong to the community. And I've been um, through learning sign language as well, talking to more and more deaf people who are who either grew up in the community or who are just discovering the community or who are questioning their identity as hearing or deaf and just having access to people with the same experiences or coming from the same position in the world has not only given me comfort, it's given me fortitude to advocate for more access because I was very aware that we are lucky in Australia. There is a general understanding of disability. It's not great, but at least we've got resources and um, people can have access to education. Whereas compared to the deaf experience in many countries around the world, it's, um, it's to, to be honest, it's quite difficult to talk about and read about because it's devastating. But I feel comfortable and confident to um, be a part of the deaf community. I'm still very new, um, but I feel welcomed, which oh, is just, uh, I'm so, so happy to talk to deaf people. So anytime people email me, I'm like, oh, email back, let's be friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, Fiona, I think that you're welcome in the uh, non-deaf community as well as the deaf community. I think, you know, this book is absolutely revelatory. It really taught me so much, but it was also such a pleasure to read because of your beautiful, poetic language. I understand that you are now writing a novel about secrets and I believe also about cadavers, so can't wait for that. Thank you very much for talking to us today, Fiona Murphy, and The Shape of Sound is published by text. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a special podcast for the Byron Bay Writers' Festival with me, Caroline Baum, produced by David Roach for Two Heads Media and by Jennifer Macy. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. 
This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.